Content warning. Today's episode of So Many Books, So Little Time contains themes such as violence, death, hospitalization, medical intervention, suicide, crazy as a term because that's just a thing. So ableism and sanism and all sorts of things. And a very callous disregard of, and I guess, nihilistic approach to life. Hey, hey, folks. Dave here. Andrew. And welcome to So Many Books. So little time. Today we will be continuing with Catch-22 by Joseph Heller with Chapter 10. Finally, we learn about Wintergreen. XPFC Wintergreen, so maybe there'll be that story as well. Mm. Now, <laughs> we've uh, been searching for the right time to record lately. There has been uh, plenty of noise at both our places, I say, as I hear a crying baby in the background. Uh, mm -hmm. Rue's next-door neighbors are undergoing, like, home repairs or yard work. Yep, yep. And um, and also, it's, there's a lot going on in terms of, like, we both live in households, so we have to, of course, be considerate towards our housemates. So it's a bit tricky sometimes to find the right <laughs> slice so, of time. Basically, we waited till uh, the workers were on their lunch break and they're like, record, record, record. Yeah, pretty much. So it's pretty intense. I'm, um, I'm not going to be reading... Uh, faster on purpose, but if we have a speedier discussion, that is the reason behind it. Yes, we may be a little rushed today, simply because of the, the time gap of depending on someone else's lunch. Yes. It's, um, We've uh, we've had we we got some feedback the other day from from a listener, which was nice, um, which is discussing the idea of the fact that when you listen to a podcast the way that you decide on continuing to listen to a podcast, it kind of seems to be the ones where you feel like you could be part of that conversation and you'd be interested in the different views and you'd like to contribute. So it it's, there's a sense of interaction that even if it's not taking place, there's a desire to interact with that kind of dialogue. So the interest in the dialogue and I'm like going, oh, okay, cool. That's um, it's nice to, to kind of see I, I uh, do recognize that in the podcasts I listen to, it feels like you, it, it's something I have to keep reminding myself of because you get to know these personalities and, you know, mm. a podcast is people talking. So it really is, for the most part, like friends having a conversation. And it's easy to think that you're part of that circle. Yeah. And I have to keep reminding myself, no, no, I don't know these people, but I enjoy listening to them talk. So I got to yeah. keep it like that. <laughs> Yeah, the way that I kind of have described it in my head is you can recognize like-minded people or people with whom you feel a connection because ultimately all humans can potentially feel connection with one another. The difference is, though, that we're basing it only on the facet that is being allowed to be heard and be seen. So we don't like we feel like we know a person, but we don't necessarily know a person. We can only know as much as they're willing to share. And then you also don't know how that person is is in in actual interaction with you you don't know what you bring out in that person and what they bring out in you so it's like if you if you want to say truly getting to know a person a podcast isn't how you truly get to know a person but you can 
get an insight or a glimpse into where you feel you belong in terms of dialogue and in terms of ideas and the kind of people you'd like to be surrounded by. And I think that's different to, oh, I know the person because I've been listening to them talk or converse. There's a, there's a distinction. Social media does have that challenge that it provides for an opportunity to feel connected, but at the same time, it's, uh, it can also give an illusion of feeling connected, I guess, is the, the, the thing. So we are happy that you're listening to us. We like that you you enjoy the dialogue and you feel like you belong. Being like We're hoping that we're welcoming and encouraging you to feel that way. And, of course, we recognize as well that and, – and, and we're sure that you also recognize that you may not know us know us, but at least we're hoping that you get enough of who we are to, to know a little bit about how we see the world. You know, you know, on that point, um, uh, my sister, she listened to one of our podcasts a while back and she said she didn't feel a need to continue because it was basically, she goes, well, it's you and Rue talking and I've been around that. So I know what that is. I, <laughs> I don't need to, um, spend extra time listening to that. But, but then she also made an interesting observation where she said my podcast voice is a lot more put upon than uh, my normal speaking voice. And it got me thinking about um, podcast first YouTube, which is the other creative endeavor I um, express myself with. And YouTube, even, even though, because, because when it started, it was that idea of, you know, anybody with a camera can make something so people would... Uh, flock towards a perceived authenticity. These people are being ours themselves. And, you know, it, it's actually very similar. I think people listen to podcasts because they like the personalities that are, that are having the discussion more than the discussion themselves. That's why yeah. I don't worry too much when we like, you know, talk for 30 minutes before we start reading the chapter. I am mindful because, you know, some people are more here for the book than are here for us. But I, I think it's true in YouTube and it's true in podcasts or, or uh, m most online because the, the, a lot of the idea of an online persona is that the, the barrier between who created the work and um, the people who enjoy the work has uh, lessened. Mm -hmm. and, and there's an excitement to that. There is also a danger in that. So I notice on YouTube, like it, it is much, it's not even a persona. It's just I tend to... Um, shift into a different shade of myself, maybe an exaggerated mm. shade in some aspects. But on the podcast, I don't do that. Well, actually on YouTube, I don't do that consciously either. It just kind of happens. And I think the podcaster is less of that because while I am aware of the microphone in front of me and I, you know, I, I keep looking at the time and I have the book here, I know what we're doing. At the end of the day, even though we're socially distanced because of, you know, gestures at world, Rue's right there on my screen. So, so in an essence, it, it really is, I'm having a discussion with a friend, but I guess there's still a little bit of artifice to that. Yeah, well, because uh, uh, we, we were talking about this the other day, that it's, I don't know if it's put upon as much as it is. We know we're having a conversation that others will be hearing. So we try and be considerate to our listener. That's why, for example, we'll avoid, <laughs> we try and catch ourselves before we go into inside jokes because there are many 
as as happens with friendships and, and human mm. relationships you form uh like an inside way of of interacting in common ground and history and jokes slang slang yeah language or certain words that have certain meanings in that particular circle because of an instant uh there's things like that that can happen but I don't know if it's as much as it that it's put upon and more maybe it's being considerate to the fact that we do have a listening audience. Like there's a there's a there's consciousness, but there's not necessarily self-consciousness. It's more being aware that you are contributing to something that someone else is listening to, so you need to be considerate to them. I wonder if it's also sense? like um you know, the the I everyone has that instinct when you feel like you're being watched. And mm. that's probably related to the idea that, you know, we used to have a lot more predators when we were trying to yeah, live and survive. So, so when your body was telling you someone's watching you or something is watching you, it's like, take heed of that because it's like an inbuilt warning system. And I mm. guess the idea where, you know, th there is a different energy, a different atmosphere than like, let's say, uh, Rue and I are in the same room and we're just chilling and talking. Like that atmosphere is going to be different from what we're doing right now because kind of it's it's a, it's an audio medium, so we're not being watched, but we are. There are others out there. We are not yeah. alone. Hmm. And I think that that's not a bad thing. That's not hmm. a bad sensation. I mean, <laughs> others out there and they're a threat. That that second part that's a problem. But others out there, and I should be aware of that and conscious of that in terms of my actions, my behavior, my impact, my decisions, my language, my choices. Not in a way that you, you become, I mean, the word is, you don't want to be paranoid and only fixated on, oh no, what what will others think? But more, how can I, how do I affect others, I guess? Mm -hmm. That's, there's such little subtle differences. And I think that that's why when we temper things, that's the key. Tempering things like, being considerate and compassionate. If you're considerate and compassionate to the point where you are completely, you completely disregard your own well-being, I mean, you can choose to do that, and I'm I'm not going to judge a person for doing that. That's that's their choice, but it has to be choice related. And I don't know if people do these things sometimes out of a compulsion or a need, versus a choice say you choose to be completely compassionate and completely only thinking about others and never looking after yourself then you can't be compassionate to others because you're not actually looking after yourself you're not considering your needs as well yeah i, 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 I was going yeah. to put in that um yeah. some this fictitious person we're talking about i would i would yeah. consider that unhealthy to be yeah, thinking of others at the expense of one's own well-being yes at the expense of your own well-being i mean there's there is sacrifices yes, it gets complicated but, but, but that that's a very specific circumstance yeah if, if, if your entire existence i mean there is general and I, i'd say that would be for example someone who has a very generous heart and a very generous existence as well as compassionate and there's there's a need for that but at the same time there has to be also justice involved and fairness and a little bit of so all these things it, it's there's a balance that's needed if you do things to the extreme without balancing things out a little bit then we tend to have problems moderation or temperance yeah. as you said i mean temperance is kind of a different thing but it, it feels like the same idea the idea that um 
it's okay to have a glass of wine, but once you have five, that's a problem. Well, or if I'm thinking about it, for example, in its extreme form, uh, justice. So if you have justice and you treat justice like it's very black and white and mm -hmm. very extreme and very much these are the rules uh, and you don't temper it with mercy and compassion and understanding. You, you become a lawful good paladin in a D&D &D group and no one wants to play with your character. Well, that and also you become that's punitive justice mm -hmm. and it's not restorative justice. It's also not constructive and it's not it, there's no room for growth and understanding and change. There's no, there's no, the the, the word um, they they like to. I mean, most legal systems you can kind of look at it. It's like uh, there is no way to rehabilitate if you only have punishment as the focus. Yeah, yeah. Um, then then there's no growth. There's no change. There's no need to focus on the actual causes and the the social inequities and all these things that are happening that are driving the bre the breaking of the rules maybe the rules aren't just like so it's, it's it becomes more complicated i mean i'm not a lawyer uh, i'm also not in legal kind of spaces but in terms of ethics i'd say that we sometimes compromise ethics and sociological and psychological aspects for the sake of material justice and purely material justice like there's that that that's a priority over human cost and effect. Oh, and and one of the, one of the big problems for me looking at the current state of the world is that justice isn't universal. No. If if you're a privileged person, uh, you will get a very different justice system mm. than if you are um, underprivileged. Yeah, if you can afford the really fancy, expensive lawyers, you're going to have a different outcome than. Or if, or you if you're a person in power. You know, yeah. you, you get a lot more allowances towards what you can get away with. Yeah. So there's, there's I mean, and this, this, uh, the reason I kind of bringing this back to our book, we've got a situation, we've had some of this described where you have, there's certain rules for certain people, depending on their rank and where they are in the military, the hierarchical, hierarchical, um, structure. And then you scroll out and we've got, we're, we're getting to know a Wintergreen and we know Wintergreen lost his, He's an ex-private uh, first class, ex-PFC. So obviously he's experienced something to make him no longer private first class. And we know that there's a bit of antagonism towards him as well, but there's also some grudging respect from others. And he seems to work in an administrative role. Yeah. So it's, it, so let's find out. Like, I mean, the reason this also is coming up was like major, 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 major. He got to the point where the system broke him. And, and also, I think really... Well, the final thing that broke him was that he could no longer be part of... It's funny, he had he had all the negatives of his position and then the positives because he was yeah. also put in a position where nothing he did mattered. He wasn't yeah. needed there. No. And he also was completely, like... He, he knew he couldn't do anything. He was hopeless and he was frustrated and tired. And, and so, yeah, he's, he he broke. And then we're, we're now, uh, I mean, we had the thing at the end of last time, like, I'm sorry, but there's nothing I can do. Yeah, Colonel Korn said you, you can never say that there's nothing he could do. He's, he's like, well, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. So there's that little inkling of compassion and mercy sneaking out, saying, I, I, I wish I could. I can't. But yes. 
And so we continue with Wintergreen and we find out what's going on. Mm. Chapter 10, Wintergreen. Clevenger was dead. That was the basic flaw in his philosophy. Eighteen planes had let down through a beaming white cloud off the coast of Elba one afternoon on the way back from the weekly milk run to Parma. Seventeen came out. No trace was ever found of the other, not in the air or on the smooth surface of the jade waters below. There was no debris. Helicopters circled the white cloud till sunset. During the night, the cloud blew away, and in the morning, there was no more Clevenger. The disappearance was astounding, as astounding certainly as the grand conspiracy of Lowry Field, when all 64 men in a single barrack vanished one payday and were never heard of again. Until Clevenger was snatched from existence so adroitly, Yasserian had assumed that the men had simply decided unanimously to go AWOL the same day. In fact, he had been so encouraged by what appeared to be a mass desertion from sacred responsibility that he had gone running outside in elation to carry the exciting news to XPFC Wintergreen. What's so exciting about it, XPFC Wintergreen sneered obnoxiously, resting his filthy G.I. shoe on his spade and lounging back in a surly slough against the wall of one of the deep, square holes that was his military specialty to dig. XPFC Wintergreen was a snide little punk who enjoyed working at cross-purposes. Each time he went AWOL, he was caught and sentenced to dig and fill up holes six feet deep, wide and long for a specified length of time. Each time he finished his sentence, he went AWOL again. XPFC Wintergreen accepted his role of digging and filling up holes with all the uncomplaining dedication of a true patriot. It's not a bad life, he would observe philosophically, and I guess somebody has to do it. He had wisdom enough to understand that digging holes in Colorado was not such a bad assignment in wartime. Since the holes were in no great demand, he could dig them and fill them up at a leisurely pace, and he was seldom overworked. On the other hand, he was busted down to buck private each time he was court-martialed. He regretted this loss of rank keenly. It was kind of nice being a PFC, he reminisced yearningly. I had status, you know what I mean? And I used to travel in the best circles. His face darkened with resignation. But that's all behind me now, he guessed. The next time I go over the hill, it will be as a buck private. And I just know it won't be the same. There was no future in digging holes. The job isn't even steady. I lose it each time I finish serving my sentence. Then I have to go over the hill again if I want it back. And I can't even keep doing that. There's a catch. Catch 22. The next time I go over the hill, it will mean the stockade. I don't know what's going to become of me. I might even wind up overseas if I'm not careful. He did not want to keep digging holes for the rest of his life, although he had no objection to doing it as long as there was a war going on and it was a part of the war effort. It's a matter of duty, he observed, and we each have our own to perform. My duty is to keep digging these holes, and I've been doing such a good job of it that I've just been recommended for the Good Conduct Medal. Your duty is to screw around in cadet school and hope the war ends before you get out. The duty of the men in combat is to win the war, and I just wish they were doing their duty as well as I've been doing mine. It wouldn't be fair if I had to go overseas and do their job too, would it? One day, XPFC Wintergreen struck open a water pipe while digging in one of his holes and almost drowned to death before he was fished out nearly unconscious. Word spread that it was oil and Chief White Hapit was kicked off the base. 
Of course. <laughs> Soon every man who could find a shovel was outside digging frenziedly for oil. Dirt flew everywhere. The scene was almost like the morning in Pianosa seven months later after the night Milo bombed the squadron with every plane he had accumulated in his M&M syndicate, and the airfield bomb dump and repair hangars as well, and all the survivors were outside hacking cavernous shelters into the solid ground and roofing them over with sheets of armor plate stolen from the repair sheds at the field and with tattered squares of waterproof canvas stolen from the side flaps of each other's tents. Chief White Halfoot was transferred out of Colorado at the first rumor of oil and came to rest finally in Pianosa as a replacement for Lieutenant Combs, who had gone out on a mission as a guest one day just to see what combat was like and had died over Ferreira in the plane with Kraft. Yasserian felt guilty each time he remembered Kraft, guilty because Kraft had been killed on Yasserian's second bomb run, and guilty because Kraft had got mixed up instantly also in the splendid Atabrine insurrection that had begun in Puerto Rico on the first leg of their flight overseas and ended in Pianosa ten days later, with Appleby striding dutifully into the orderly room the moment he arrived to report Yasserian for refusing to take his Atabrine tablets. The sergeant there invited him to be seated. Thank you, Sergeant. I think I will, said Appleby. About how long will I have to wait? I've still got a lot to get done today so that I can be fully prepared, bright and early tomorrow morning, to go into combat the minute they want me to. Uh, back, like back, back, back. Lots of backs. So, if, if we... Uh, okay, so XPFC Wintergreen. Mm. He was happy digging holes. He kept going AWOL in the in the States, in Colorado, in order to get sent back to digging holes. But the next time he did it, he'd end up in the stockade. He was trying to avoid going overseas. He's now obviously in Pianosa. And when he dug, he once hit a water pipe. Um, it caused everyone to go very frenzied and digging everywhere. And apparently it looked like... In Pianosa, seven months later, so this was still in the States, seven months later in Pianosa, after the night Milo bombed the squadron with every plane he had accumulated in his M&M syndicate. So, yeah, we're really time jumping it. Like, the, the chapter started with Clevenger being dead. Yeah, so Clevenger is dead, and that was a problem. And in the meantime, well, he's disappeared, but he's dead, uh, most likely. Um, yeah, what was it like? A plane disappeared. 18 planes went, 17 came back. Yeah, and, and there's no debris, but that doesn't really mean much. Then we've got the M&M Syndicate. So, boom. So, going back and forth. And Chief Huff, so he was sent uh, He was sent as soon as there was a mention of oil out to, of course, who'd gone on. Okay, so... It all kind of connects to each other. So you have the oil situation, which was Wintergreen caused the oil situation, which caused Chief White Half Oat to go to Pianosa as a replacement for Lieutenant Coombs. Lieutenant Coombs, who had gone out on a mission as a guest one day just to see what combat was like, and had died of a Ferrera in the plane with Kraft, which Assyrian feels guilty about because Kraft had been killed on Yossarian's second bomb run. And innocently in the, the Adabrian insurrection. Because remember, he Usarian didn't want to take the tablets. Mm. And he had that happen. That happened on the milk run as well. Uh, Possibly I milk run. I think I asked back then, but what is Adabrian? Uh It would be a stimulant. Okay. And Apple, Ad, where, where we left off, Appleby is trying to Applebee's dog Usarian. Well, no, Adabrian is reporting him. Appleby's reporting him. Mm. 
um, because he wants to go to combat the minute they want him. And of course, Major Major, he wants to see Major Major. Major Major is never, you can't see Major Major. Hmm. But yeah. Okay. Uh, sir, what's that, Sergeant? What was your question about how long will I have to wait before I can go in to see the Major? Just until he goes out to lunch, Sergeant Towser replied, then you can go right in. But he won't be there then, will he? No, sir. Major Major won't be back in his office until after lunch. I see, Appleby decided uncertainly. I think I'd better come back after lunch then. Appleby turned from the orderly room in secret confusion. The moment he stepped outside, he thought he saw a tall, dark officer who looked a little like Henry Fonda come jumping out of the window of the orderly room tent and go scooting out of sight around the corner. Appleby halted and squeezed his eyes closed. An anxious doubt assailed him. He wondered if he were suffering from malaria or worse, from an overdose of Adabrine tablets. Appleby had been taking four times as many Adabrine tablets as the amount prescribed because he wanted to be four times as good a pilot as everyone else. His eyes were still shut when Sergeant Towser tapped him lightly on the shoulder and told him he could go in now if he wanted to, since Major Major had just gone out. Appleby's confidence returned. Thank you, Sergeant. Will he be back soon? He'll be back right after lunch. Then you'll have to go right out and wait for him in front till we leave for dinner. Major and Major never sees anyone in his office while he's in his office. Sergeant, what did you just say? I said that Major Major never sees anyone in his office while he's in his office. Appleby stared at Sergeant Towser intently and attempted a firm tone. Sergeant, are you trying to make a fool out of me just because I'm new in the squadron and you've been overseas a long time? Oh, no, sir, answered the sergeant deferentially. Those are my orders. You can ask Major Major when you see him. That's just what I intend to do, Sergeant. When can I see him? Never. <laughs> so funny. Crimson with humiliation, Appleby wrote down his report about Yesarian and the Antibrine tablets on a pad the sergeant offered him and left quickly, wondering if perhaps Yesarian were not the only man privileged to wear an officer's uniform who was crazy. By the time Colonel Cathcart had raised the number of missions to 55, Sergeant Towser had begun to suspect that perhaps every man who wore a uniform was crazy. Sergeant Towser was lean and angular and had fine blonde hair so light it was almost without color, sunken cheeks and teeth like large white marshmallows. He ran the squadron and was not happy doing it. Men like Hungry Joe glowered at him with blameful hatred and Appleby subjected him to vindictive discourtesy now that he had established himself as a hot pilot and a ping-pong player who never lost a point. Sergeant Towser ran the squadron because there was no one else in the squadron to run it. He had no interest in war or advancement. He was interested in shards and Heppelwhite furniture. Almost without realizing it, Sergeant Towser had fallen into the habit of thinking of the dead man in Yesarian's tent in Yesarian's own terms as a dead man in the Assyrian's tent. In reality, he was no such thing. He was simply a replacement pilot who had been killed in combat before he had officially reported for duty. He had stopped at the operations tent to inquire the way to the orderly room tent and had been sent right into action because so many men had completed the 35 missions required then that Captain Pilchard and Captain Wren were finding it difficult to assemble the number of crews specified by group. Because he had never officially gotten into the squadron, he could never officially be gotten out, and Sergeant Towser sensed that the multiplying communications relating to the poor man would continue reverberating forever. His name was Mud. 
To Sergeant Towser, who deplored violence and waste with equal aversion, it seemed like such an abhorrent extravagance to fly mud all the way across the ocean just to have him blown into bits over Orvieto less than two hours after he arrived. No one could recall who he was or what he had looked like, least of all Captain Pilchard and Captain Wren, who remembered only that a new officer had shown up at the operations tent just in time to be killed, and who colored uneasily every time the matter of the dead man in Yasserian's tent was mentioned. The only one who might have seen mud, the men in the same plane, had all been blown to bits with him. I you wanted see- to see if it was going to be the other people, but it can't be the other people because they're... Oh, wait, no. It could be... Um, what's his name? That's Kraft. Lieutenant Coombs. Ferreira. No, that's a different place. Mm-hmm. Dang it. Yeah, th- this... Um, it's funny because this chapter more than others, I think it, it really feels like it assumes the reader has the entire timeline in their head. And so when, when, when they skip around, you know, you're able to follow, but of course we don't have it. And so it ends up being confusing, but not really confusing because now we're 10 chapters in and we know little sprinklings of a lot of these stories. Mm. So we're at least able to jump to, okay, he's talking about this now uh, so we can at least listen to what we're learning about this mm. and and like then we can do what you like you did after I read a few pages where okay okay let, let's piece together what's what's being covered here yeah man it's confusing but yes let us let us continue. <laughs> it's almost like you have to be a bit of a detective <laughs> mm. almost more than a, like an Agatha Christie novel yeah more so oh wow So Yasserian, on the other hand, knew exactly who Mud was. Mud was the unknown soldier who never had a chance, for that was the only thing anyone ever did know about all the unknown soldiers. They never had a chance. They had to be dead, and this dead one was really unknown, even though his belongings still lay in a tumble on the cot in Yasserian's tent, almost exactly as he had left them three months earlier the day he never arrived. All contaminated with death, less than two hours later, in the same way that all was contaminated with death in the very next week, during the great big siege of Bologna, when the moldy odor of mortality hung wet in the air with a sulfurous fog, and every man scheduled to fly was already tainted. Mm. There was no escaping the mission to Bologna. Once Colonel Cathcart had volunteered his group for the ammunition dumps there, that the heavy bombers on the Italian mainland had been unable to destroy from their higher altitudes. Each day's delay deepened the awareness and deepened the gloom. The clinging, overpowering conviction of death spread steadily with the continuing rainfall, soaking mordantly into each man's ailing countenance like the corrosive blot of some crawling disease. Everyone smelled of formaldehyde. There was nowhere to turn for help, not even to the medical tent, which had been ordered closed by Colonel Korn so that no one could report for sick call as the men had done on the one clear day with a mysterious epidemic of diarrhea that had forced still another postponement. Mm. With sick call suspended and the door to the medical tent nailed shut, Dr. Nika spent the intervals between rain perched on a high stool, wordlessly absorbing the bleak outbreak of fear with a sorrowing neutrality, roosting like a melancholy buzzard below the ominous hand-lettered sign tacked up on the closed door of the medical tent by Captain Black as a joke, and left hanging there by Dr. Nika because it was no joke. 
the sign was bordered in dark crayon and read, closed until further notice, death in the family. Oh, jeez. The fear flowed everywhere. Into Dunbar's squadron, where Dunbar poked his head inquiringly through the entrance of the medical tent there one twilight and spoke respectfully to the blurred outline of Dr. Stubbs, who was sitting in the dense shadows inside before a bottle of whiskey and a bell jar filled with purified drinking water. Are you all right? he asked solicitously. Terrible, Dr. Stubbs answered. What are you doing here? Sitting. I thought there was no more sickle. There ain't. Then why are you sitting here? Where else should I sit? At the goddamn officers club with Colonel Cathcart and Corn? Do you know what I'm doing here? Sitting. In the squadron, I mean. Not in the tent. Don't be such a goddamn wise guy. Can you figure out what a doctor is doing here in the squadron? They've got the doors to the medical tents nailed shut in the other squadrons, Dunbar remarked. If anyone sick walks through my door, I'm going to ground him, Dr. Stubbs out. I don't give a damn what they say. You can't ground anyone, Dunbar reminded. Don't you know the orders? I'll knock him flat on his ass with an injection and really ground him. Dr. Stubbs laughed with sardonic amusement at the prospect. They think they can order sick call out of existence, the bastards. Oops, there it goes again. The rain began falling again, first in the trees, then in the mud puddles, then faintly like a soothing murmur on the tent top. Everything's wet, Dr. Stubbs observed with revulsion. Even the latrines and urinals are backing up in protest. The whole goddamn world smells like a charnel house. The silence seemed bottomless when he stopped talking. Night fell. There was a sense of vast isolation. Turn on the light, Dunbar suggested. There is no light. I don't feel like starting my generator. I used to get a big kick out of saving people's lives. Now I wonder what the hell's the point, since they all have to die anyway. No, there's a point, all right, Dunbar assured him. Is there? What is the point? The point is to keep them from dying for as long as you can. Yeah, but what's the point, since they all have to die anyway? The trick is not to think about that. Never mind the trick. What the hell's the point? Dunbar pondered in silence for a few moments. Who the hell knows? Dunbar didn't know. Bologna should have exalted Dunbar because the minutes dawdled and the hours dragged like centuries. Instead, it tortured him because he knew he was going to be killed. Do you really want some more codeine? Dr. Stubbs asked. It's for my friend Yesarian. He's sure he's going to be killed. Yesarian? Who the hell is Yesarian? What the hell kind of name is Yesarian anyway? Isn't he the one who got drunk and started that fight with Colonel Korn at the officers club the other night? That's right. He's a Syrian. That crazy bastard. He's not so crazy, Dunbar said. He swears he's not going to fly to Bologna. That's just what I mean, Dr. Stubbs answered. That crazy bastard may be the only sane one left. <laughs> oh, and that's the end of the chapter. Yeah, it's interesting. So PFC Wintergreens is kind of a great example of the people that don't want to be there, but they're there and they're kind of stuck being there and they it, it's a mess. He, he somehow worked his way into admin, an administrative position, though, because he's not on the ground. He's a communications officer. Hmm. Somehow. Um, and then you've got the, yeah, far out. Then I, I can't remember us actually meeting Dr. Stubbs before. I don't know. I thought we had. But I might just have, I might just be filling in him in my brain. But I think there's different squadrons. And you know that thing about uh, trying to cancel the sick tent so no one can go on sick leave? That, yeah. 
that, that, that sounds like something that would happen. Yeah. Well, also remember um, earlier on Bologna was mentioned and the fact is that Usarian is trying to avoid them going there mm. as much as possible. Well, because uh, what was it? It's, um, it's Colonel Cathcart. He's the one that's volunteered his squadron yeah. um, because these ammunition dumps are too well fortified that not even the planes, the, the fighter planes that fly higher than the bombers, which are safer than bombers, can get the job done. So he's yeah. going to send his bombers, who are basically going to be sitting ducks, in en masse to do this job. Yeah, the, there's some things I can't remember in the previous chapter. It came up as well. I'm, this is going to be one of those things where I'll watch the series and it will make sense then. Right now, it's not. You say that. Yeah, no, it'll make more sense than what it is right now. Like, it's okay. But there's there's moments of it that are um, just frustrating because you go, I get what's happening, but at the same time, because there was moments where they were in the past and now they were in the future, like, it's, it's too scattered mm-hmm. to actually... Like you, you get the gist of it, but you don't get a chance unless you sat down and properly like highlighted it and cross reference and stuff. At least in my brain, I can't. For me, just there's no anchor, no footing. No, and 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 that I think in in a sense becomes a bit frustrating too. Well, because because also this chapter was much more like previous chapters where we actually didn't get much about the person the chapter is named after. The the only exception to that was. Prima, our, our last episode, the major, major chapter, because that was the longest one in the book so far. Mm. Um, and it was pretty much entirely about him. Yeah. But but yeah. this one was like previous chapters where we get a little bit about him, but then the chapter goes off into other things, under unrelated things. Yeah, it's a mess. But yeah, I think Dr. Stubbs is actually the good doctor, whereas the other doctor is not a good doctor. Well, I did like that, you know, he says, anyone who um, is coming in my tent, I'm going to grant them immediately. Yeah, doesn't want them to to go to... I, I must say, um, more than most chapters, there was a lot of poetry in the prose in this one, uh, describing the rain and the, the isolation, the... Uh, I think it's the preamble to Bologna, and it's interesting that they had the... the okay, I'm going to say that the soap incident occurred just before Bologna. Ah, yeah, yeah, that was So the only sense. clear day they had was sabotaged by by um, soap run. But the soap run was before Milo became the officer, right? The mess officer? Yes, but this it still works as a sequence of events. Right, so so Bologna is something that's been they've tried to get happening for a while then. There's been like multiple yeah. attempts at it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, Be- because I'm thinking if it already happened, then we know that most people made it back from Bologna because we've seen future with Yesarian. And- yeah, no, I think it, they attempted it. And they, didn't they have like three or four attempts? It was mentioned. I and don't every know if it time was that. it's terrifying to them. Like they were like. And this time they just dumped the 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 bombs, just hoping like one of them will hit. Also, the um, Doctor Stubbs. Uh, there was that interesting discussion with uh, Dunbar. He's become a bit of a nihilist. He's like, "Why am I treating people if everyone's going to die anyway?" They don't think about it. Say, "Well, yeah." The point is to keep them from dying as long as possible. Why should I do that? Don't think about it. <laughs> yeah. 
But also Dunbar's feeling. He he's also um a little selfless. He's there for Usarian. He's getting coding for Usarian. Because Yossarian, it sounds like he's he's really agitated because he thinks Bologna is going to be the end. Well, he they all know they all know yeah. that it's like a it's a suicide mission. But but then Doctor Stubb says, "Well, he must be one of the only sane people left." Yeah, far out. So I'm I'm guess I'm guessing that the uh, lunch time is over. Yeah. It is. There's noise. Well, folks, um, we're we're very under time, but I I think we'll have to wrap it up just be, because uh, like oh, there, there's been planes, there's been yard work at my place, the thing happening with Rue. It's, we don't want to miss a week, and it's fi- finding the time where we can be undisturbed is it's, is it's, precious it's a, this yes, week. Yes, it, it, it's, it's just difficult. It's usually not this bad, but I, I guess. But I guess it's bound to happen every now and then. So uh, yeah. th- thank thank you for joining us on this uh, episode. I, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, it was a bit of a short chapter, too, which is a good thing that we ended before everything started up again. Um, yes. The music at the top of the podcast is Soap Runs. It's composed by uh, Rupert Gregson-Williams and Harry Gregson-Williams. It's from the 2019 adaptation of Catch-22. The music at the end of the podcast is... I'm the Slime by Frank Zappa. You can find me over on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. You can find me at Rue McMoo, that's R-O-O-M-C-M-O-O on Twitter as well. And our podcast on, at SMBSLT podcast, both on Twitter and Facebook. We hope that the hiccups that we've had regarding the episodes um, have been sorted out. Otherwise, yes. Hopefully you are able to hear us. That's the question. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll continue to make sure that um, everything works at least as well as we can. I mean, I mean, from my understanding, it's just basically there, there's been a little bit of a disconnect with some of uh, the places that we would uh, share a podcast link with. Yes. Pretty and, much. and that might just take time for them to go, oh, you've changed. Cool. We're, we're yeah. good again. A couple of things just need to be updated. But yes. Okay, so yes, I, I hope you enjoyed it, everyone. Um, I, I do have, even though we have no control over our external circumstances, I feel the need to apologize for how short and clipped this episode does need to be. But I, I hope you will join us uh, next week and you're enjoying the book. And I hope you're enjoying your own reading. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Until then.